Hi everyone, Dr. Elizabeth Bonet here. Dr. Liz, welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Before we jump in, please note that the podcast is not mental health treatment, nor should it replace mental health treatment. If you need psychotherapy or hypnotherapy, please seek treatment from a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so please feel free to contact me through my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z-hypnosis.com. Hi everyone, Dr. Liz here. I want to be clear that this is a groundbreaking book that Locke Kelly has published. She's the person I'm interviewing today. And we had spoken a little bit after the interview, actually, that some of these practices have been kept from people because it's a really part of an advanced training when you're an advanced meditator that meditation teachers teach. And there is a sense of having to pay your dues, like get to a certain level before we'll teach you this and before we'll teach you that in more of the traditional meditation traditions. Let's say traditional twice in the same sentence. That's pretty hard, but (laughs) that's the truth, really. So I found it quite a fascinating book, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I do. Before we jump in, I want to quickly let people know that I am going to run an online group in 2020 and we will be using some of these practices so it's going to focus on hypnosis and more mindful eating some weight loss if that's someone's goal or just controlling your eating if that's your goal mindfulness practices are a big piece of tuning into the body so I was so happy to get some of those tips and techniques through this book and to talk to Locke about how he wrote this book and why he wrote this book and all the good stuff in it. All right, let's jump in. Hi, Locke. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Nice to be here. Looking forward to it. Yes, me too. I read your new book and I found it really lovely, just um, Hmm. full of wisdom and practical things that I could use as well. And I immediately found myself thinking about how I could use this to help some of my clients and to help people in general. So I want to just tell you that right off the bat. I really love the book. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. The way of effortless mindfulness. Thank you. Yes. What struck me when I first came across your bio, um, someone else I had interviewed on the podcast, Jeff Warren, who's also a meditation teacher, sent me your info and said, hey, Elizabeth, you've really got to interview this person. He's he's fantastic. I said, okay, great. I'll go take a look at him. And you have a degree out of Union Theological Seminary, correct? That's right. Yes. Okay. Is it a a master's in divinity or is it? Yes. Um, Union Theological has had the first program in the United States in what they called psychiatry and spirituality. Oh. It was a program that was started to try to combine spirituality and contemplative uh, sciences. Wonderful, wonderful. Both my parents were ministers. Actually, my dad was a Methodist minister growing up. After he passed away, my mother became a minister. 
like an ordained minister as well. Mm -hmm. And then she spent time in Nepal. And I know you've spent time in Nepal as well. So I was like, wow, there's some some crossing here that really struck (laughs) me. That's great. So you studied at Union and then Mm -hmm. you went to um, Nepal after that. When was yeah, that? I, I ended up doing a joint degree um, with Union Theological and Columbia University School of Social Work. But the first year um, at Union, um, I went on a fellowship to Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal as part of that program. And I studied cross-cultural perspectives on healing, mm. where I ended up doing a lot of meditating both in monasteries and studying in the university and also, you know, studying with some healers in the local villages. Wow. What did you find? Well, I found that uh, particularly the journey led me from studying the tradition there in Sri Lanka. Buddhism is the Theravada or Vipassana tradition, Mm -hmm. which people call insight meditation. So I did five-day retreats, 10-day retreats, and a 21-day retreat. And I really enjoyed the benefits of that meditation. And then, interestingly, I went up north to uh, Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was, and was fortunate enough to have a small group audience with him. And he was just about to teach on this particular tradition of direct awakening, called Dzogchen. He was about mm-hmm. to go to France and teach on this. So he was talking to us about that. And I was so interested. I put my hand up and said, where do I go study that? Uh-huh. And he said, uh, there's a guy in Nepal, Toko Ergen Rinpoche, who teaches this. Why don't you go study with him? And so I changed all my plans and off I went to study with him for a short period of time. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And did you find that the perspective on healing is is very different Mm. than the Western one. Yes. There's a particular, you know, way that you would almost intuitively sense what's going on and access more subtle dimensions of consciousness, uh, both through uh, almost shamanic culture and then meditative and you could say almost some hypnotic Uh, induction to help people access their own natural healing ability, which is the real main difference. Hmm. Was it integrated with like a psychological perspective, meaning like these subtle energies in the body are indicative of psychological things going on, or is it it more more physical based than that? It's more psychological. Go spiritual, energetic. They didn't use as much of the psychological language, but I could, you know, uh, match it up with psychological conditions. Certainly, mm-hmm. o- obstacles to healing, ways that people were closed down or resisting or, you know, traumatized in a certain way. Oh, okay. Okay. Fascinating. I love that stuff. It's it's funny because I'm going to tell the listeners right before this interview, I didn't even know you had studied that or that was really your topic when you went abroad. And I had just said to Locke that I'm working on some digestive problems that I'm having some GI problems. Mm 
with more like meditative healing and diet. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was wonderful that that um that lined up. I said that even before I knew that you really studied that. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting. So yeah. then you also learned what you call deliberate mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. practices when you were there. And I want to jump more into the book now, if that's mm-hmm. okay. Sure. Okay. Because I found it really fascinating to make that distinction. Yes. And you make the distinction between deliberate mindfulness versus effortless mindfulness. That's right. So can you help the listeners understand that distinction? Yes. So what I'm calling deliberate mindfulness is what most people know as mindfulness, which is the practices primarily from insight meditation and Zen, which primarily starts with concentration practices, focusing on your breath or an object, and then allowing your mind to just kind of rest. And when your mind wanders, returning to your breath, and then doing what's called the four foundations of mindfulness, which is stepping back into a mindful witness, and then being aware of thoughts, feelings, and sensations as arising and passing. So rather than being identified with, I don't like uh, the, what that person said to me, you can feel that, but then you step into a mindful witness and you realize, oh, that's a thought, oh, that's a feeling, oh, that's a sensation. I don't have to act from that. Um, I can feel that. And then there's another level of uh, insight that I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotion. I don't have to be identified or attached to it. I can feel it, but then I could witness it as well. So that's kind of the deliberate mindfulness method, Mm -hmm. and it has great effect and results, particularly for stress management. Mm -hmm. And then the second, which is what I've brought forward in the way of effortless mindfulness, is what's called effortless mindfulness, which in the North Indian and Tibetan tradition is considered the next natural stage. So you would do deliberate mindfulness and then you would do effortless mindfulness. So, so before we move on the effort, the deliberate mindfulness is, is really what people are saying. Like you need to meditate, you need to meditate, you know, 10 minutes a day or five minutes or whatever. Like you're constantly hearing this encouragement to meditate. That's right. So it's more of a, a deliberate action that you're taking. Yes. And okay. it's, it's kind of using your, you know, everyday consciousness. When most people meditate, they usually do the first practice of the two practices, which is the either concentration or watching your breath and mm-hmm. noticing that your mind wanders and coming back. So that's pretty much you're deliberately just using attention to focus on your breath. And then your mind will wander, and then you'll bring it back to this simple task. So rather than thinking about something or you're deliberately, intentionally focusing in a narrow way on a small task, which is this one object, one pointed attention. Mm -hmm. So, So you keep deliberately coming back to that, and that allows the other levels of the chattering mind to kind of go into the background and be less 
taking you away or yes yeah yeah and there has been a lot of research um, more recently I would say in the last decade about the benefits of that of yes. meditation practice in terms of reducing stress anxiety calming the nervous system mm-hmm. you know all kinds of benefits that happen yeah. very quickly when yes. people commit to a, a certain time of meditating even if it's five or ten minutes literally that's right yeah they say seven minutes is now <clears throat> the research has shown if you can do seven minutes you can get the result and if you do it consistently mm-hmm. it really is like kind of one of the pillars of health uh, yes yeah you know, sleep eating well exercise and meditation is becoming yeah. the right. fourth fourth leg of the chair you know which is wonderful right yeah. sometimes you know the three-legged chair didn't always work so well right <laughs> that's right <laughs> So then you take this a step further yes. and there's, you call it the five foundations of effortless mindfulness. Yes. yes. So let me say a little about what effortless mindfulness. So traditionally meditation traditions from yoga to Taoism to Buddhism is about awakening. It isn't about stopping at stress management. So right. this first practice of calming and focusing, deliberate mindfulness, is traditionally practiced as the preliminary practice, not the final practice. So you can calm and then focus, and then you're not as stressed and you're not as in your chattering mind. So then you can shift into the next uh, natural dimension of consciousness, which isn't just a calmer ego, but is a sense of a another dimension of knowing, another dimension of identity um, that is able to regard that ego or that managing part or the judge as a part of you, not just thoughts, but the feeling of this more spacious and pervasive, interconnected, open-hearted presence, which is Mm -hmm. the essential nature of who we are, that when you can shift into this and then be aware from here, then there's a a whole nother level of going to the root of suffering and it gives you this capacity of love and acceptance that's naturally already here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. I would say I I have direct experience of that. I have for a couple of years without really knowing what it was called. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me too of this sense of fundamental well-being yes. that opens up in somebody. That's it. Yeah. And yeah, there was there was a um an author I interviewed, Jeffrey Martin, and I think it was episode 117, who wrote a whole book about fundamental well-being and how that feels to people and what happens, the changes that happen. And said, you know, there's different methods. He went around the world and studied Hmm. um, all kinds of people. But it occurred to me like, oh, this is a wonderful way to open into that feeling is through effortless mindfulness, is through these exercises that you give in the book. Yeah. And fundamental well-being is kind of a the halfway station is a feeling of relief or release when you step out of the small self and into this gap of relief and kind of uh, awareness-based knowing. But then 
it's really being aware from there back to an embodied, uh, almost flow consciousness. So you're not only fundamental well-being isn't a feeling, it's actually a quality of who you are. Mm, and, yes. And this sense that, as you said, you've experienced it, that most people, I think, who are listening have experienced this, what I call open-hearted awareness, when they are doing something they love during the day uh, in their free time. Most people choose to find a way to go out of the small sense of self into an interconnected flow more through movement than sitting by mm -hmm. walking in walking in nature, playing sports, gardening, dancing, uh, playing music, listening to music, doing art, you shift into the first functional awake consciousness that isn't from the calm uh, small self, which deliberate mindfulness calms the small self. And then when you shift into this flow consciousness, you're starting to access awake consciousness. Um, yes, I think the self with the capital S. Yes, right. Like, right. like your. I sometimes refer to that as your highest best self. Yes. And often people will get a sense of that versus like the small self is the one who. Um, well, you said sometimes that is still the calm. Yes. Peaceful one, but it's not the self that necessarily feels interconnected or right alive with energy and vibration right. and you know, a sense of a greater goodness, even within the self. Yeah. And uh, certainly with other people as well. Yeah. And the, the thing is, it's, a, it's naturally, so the premise of this effortless mindfulness is that this awakened consciousness, which has been revered uh, in every culture throughout history, is already inherent within each of us. So it's already installed operating system. And the feeling of it is not just like the small self gets more calm or gets wise or grows up to be this self, <laughs> this big self with a capital S, which, which is why in Buddhism, they emphasize this middle stage of no self. In other words, that the small self you have is just a thought-based pattern. Okay. of uh, self-referencing that we can function from. Uh, but actually, what we're going to do in this is move from uh, an ego function that's become an ego identity and then let the ego identity semi-retire. So let it relax the identity and keep the function. So we're not killing the ego. We're not fighting the ego we're returning it to its natural function and then upgrading to this feeling of interconnected, spacious flow that is awareness-based rather than thought-based. It's almost like dropping from head to heart-mind. So there's this kind of mm. wisdom. It's a lovely or, description. Yeah, yeah. The head to the heart-mind. Yeah. Yes. And I was reading along and thinking – you know, the small self is also that one that gets caught up in anxiety or addiction mm -hmm. and those types of things. Um, worry, depression, I would say, is, is sometimes yes. a small self. And I'm reading along thinking, well, how do you 
um, how do you not drop back into the small self? Because I know a lot of people struggle with that, Mm -hmm. including myself sometimes like, oh, geez, you know, catch myself. I'm in my small self, right? Something will happen. And it's like, okay, I just need to pause here and center and, you know, I, I do my own stuff. But it's like, right as soon as I thought that question, you answered it in the book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you said, <laughs> how do you resist returning to the small self? Um, what would you say is, is the best way to resist that? Would it be regular, deliberate, and effortless mindfulness practices? Or is it more of a larger sense of continually moving into the larger self? Yeah. Um, so the premise about deliberate mindfulness is that it's a very good thing, but it's meant to be preliminary. So as much or any way that you find to calm and focus for as long as you need, but usually seven minutes is enough. And then uh, immediately shifting into this uh, awareness-based uh, no-self self Mm-hmm. Um, which you get a feeling for, and that's what my book will help guide you and kind of give you markers for. Um, just to go back to the story of me going from the Dalai Lama recommending I go see this fellow, um, Toko Ergen Rinpoche. So I went off to Nepal, climbed into the Himalayas, and then to this small house of his with just a few students there. And he gave about a five to 15 minute talk. And then he gave this pointer to shift awareness. And I shifted my awareness into the corner of the room and then have it, had it look back through me. And then I felt within those three minutes the same way I felt at the end of a 10-day retreat. Mm. So this is the thing is that the premise here is that once you learn how to shift your awareness, there's a little effort of the awareness moving, but you then discover immediately this effortless awareness that's always already been aware. And then you start to regard what was yourself as a part of you. So this is mm. the, this is the transition. So the two, two-part answer to what you're saying is um, learn the difference between the small self and the movement through the no self to this awake self. And then, you know, recognize it, then realize it. Then the Tibetan word for meditation is translated as familiarize. So familiarize yourself with yourself. Mm-hmm. And then be aware from it back to include everything, which now when a part of you arises like a judge or a manager, you can get caught and then you can step out and realize, oh, that's not bad. That's just part of me. That's just an old habit. It's a part of me that's trying to help. Thank you for mm-hmm. helping. Um, and you start to be able to mindful, be effortlessly mindful with this new capacity toward managing parts, protective parts, and then kind of hurt child parts and 
traumatized parts can start to be healed from there. Mm. Okay, so that leads me into, do you spend um, a chapter or two, not quite sure how much, but definitely in the book, I was surprised to see that you address this in terms of working with people's parts. Yeah. So you're saying that when you begin to develop this awareness, this larger awareness of yourself as just a part, the self that you identified um, before, then you also begin to notice, let's say, these other different parts of the self. And you yes. studied with uh, Richard Schwartz, who, or collaborated, didn't study yes, with him, but you collaborated yeah. with Richard Schwartz, who's the creator of the um, internal family systems, yeah. which therapists often refer to as parts work in the yes, field. Right. And I, I would say it created a huge shift in the field of psychology. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of um, therapists are, are usually big fans of parts work right, that yeah. I've talked yeah. to. I am too. You know? yeah. Yeah. And it just sort of intuitively makes sense. Like, yeah. yes, you know, even when I was in therapy um, 20 years ago in my 20s, I remember I had a Jungian therapist mm-hmm. and she was talking about the inner critic. Yeah. And she sent me on this mission to go find a representation of the inner critic. And I found this little carved figure that was, the body was just really like a cylinder and then with just a head on top. Mm. Okay. So I brought it back and she's like, oh, it's perfect. It's just the head, right? There's no centering here in the heart. There's none of that. The inner critic was simply intellectual. Mm -hmm. But we didn't go into other parts, as I've read more about this and evolved as a therapist myself, I think the other parts are so lovely to acknowledge yes. and to acknowledge that they're all trying to help us in some way. Mm-hmm. So many yeah. people get into putting themselves down right. about a certain part. Like why does that part come out? The part that gets angry or the part that yeah. acts out or the part that, you know, yells at my kids or, you know, something like that. And it's, it's, um, a way to reframe it. And I think your, your book didn't get into it in depth, mm-hmm. but it definitely gave an introduction into how to work with some of your parts and yeah. that every part is trying to help you in some way. That's right. It, it may yeah, not feel like that. right? It's like, Oh, this part gets me in a lot of trouble. Right. But on the other side of that, it's trying to protect something that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, when you look, you know, you look through meditation, you're looking at a little finer lens. You're kind of deconstructing one level into thoughts, feelings, sensations. But then when you get off the cushion and you walk around during the day, I found it didn't really help for me to say, oh, that's just a thought. Oh, that's just a feeling. Oh, that's just a story. Oh, that's just a belief that it literally, what it feels like is this little thought, feeling, sensation, and worldview from a certain age just sneaks up the back of my head and sits in the seat of consciousness, looks out of my eyes, takes over my body, and says, bah, 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 bah. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I think, I think this is <laughs> right, the way things right. are. And then I'm like, and then the yes. mindful move is to step back. So in some ways, that Mm-hmm. That is the huge mindful move is being identified with a part and not just saying, oh, well, I'm 
I'm sad, I'm angry. Oh, there's a part of me that's angry. Oh, how do I know that? Or where do I know that from? Oh, now I see. Oh, that is a part mm-hmm. of me because it's not all of me. In fact, there's a part of me that's angry and it's protecting a part of me that's scared. Oh, now there's two parts here. Mm-hmm. Oh, the scared part, somebody yelled at me and I feel scared. And now this protector part comes up and it's angry and it wants to say something to the other person. And yet I'm aware of both those parts and I can decide to say something or not say something. So it gets Yes, this. yeah. Um, so, you know, even Freud was a parts-based system, ego, id, superego. Yes. However, the like billiard balls, the id would take over and then the ego was supposed to knock the superego and the id out of the way. And then you were supposed to be this ego, which is kind of like a thought-based person, which actually is just a part in this other system where there's a bigger self. It's just upgrading or adding one dimension of consciousness, which, you know, Jung kind of expanded a little bit, but even Jung couldn't quite understand when he wrote a introduction to Ramana Maharshi's book, he said, oh, I don't think the Western mind will ever understand what he's trying to say. So he made the Mm -hmm. self an Mm -hmm. architect. So it still was a part. Mm -hmm. So this is really bringing East and West together. But it's kind of already what we know. We just haven't known how to language it or uh, know that we know it. You know, we've we've missed it like a gap because it's initially invisible and spacious and non-word based and you know kind of like this flow consciousness mm-hmm. that we experience when we walk in nature but we're aware from it we're not feeling back to be aware oh now that I'm walking in nature and I've dropped out of my head and I'm in my body and my heart and I'm interconnected let me just feel back into who's aware now who am I rather than how do I feel So once Mm -hmm. we take it as a shift of identity and a shift of mind, uh, we can start to turn the awareness around. And in some ways, that's the the magic move of effortless mindfulness is rather than just pulling the camera back to observe the contents of consciousness, we kind of feel what's behind the camera. So we feel the context who is everything arising to? What is, it's not so much about what's arising, thoughts, emotions, whether they're even sadness or fear, but who or what are they arising to? And then as soon as you open to this larger capacity and felt sense, there's an embracing quality from this loving dimension that. Um, that immediately available. So it's this, it sounds sounds new and unique and almost complex, but it literally having taught both deliberate mindfulness and effortless mindfulness, it takes the same amount of time to learn this advanced technique and the capacity. Once you become self-aware, aware that you're aware from this 
flow consciousness, this open-hearted awareness. Um, it's just magical. It's just, it gives you this relief and this joy and this uh, well-being and freedom that you didn't know was possible, that you thought had to do with some circumstances outside of yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. Yes. And so it's like you've brought um, advanced practices down to an understandable and accessible level yeah. through this book. Yeah, that's, that, that's my whole, yeah. you know, so many of the Western teachers have brought the insight meditation and kind of made it more contemporary. And so I've tried to do the same thing with this next level mm -hmm. uh, advanced practices, which have always been considered simpler, but because they're paradoxical or don't start with, you know, just the attentional abilities that we all know, they mm -hmm. start with a kind of a, a move to look back at who's looking. And we've never done yes. that. There's no, um, no tradition and even in psychology. Uh, to do that, that it's like, what? Yeah. Wait a minute. Where are we looking? Who's looking? What's looking? And, and so it's like, I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, this right. is too intellectual. It's like, no, it's not intellectual at all. It's very experiential, but it's just mm -hmm. new. It's experiential. Yes, right. Yeah, it is funny when you're reading along. It's like, wait a minute, I have to pause. <laughs> be like, hold on, let me organize this in my mind. <laughs> But yes, yeah. experiential, absolutely. When you begin to do the practices, yeah. your understanding yeah. just skyrockets. Yeah, I think that's a good tip too for the listeners is do the practices, yeah. right? You can even start with the practices and then go back and read some of the background in the book or however you want to do it. But I think that would be a wonderful way to experience yeah. it. That's right. Is, is do one of the exercises. Yeah, and, you know, just to say for people... Um, you know, the book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness, has practices in it, but the suggestions are that you could go look at some of my YouTubes or I have me reading the practices. But the other way that people have found is if you read the practices in your own voice into your phone uh, and then listen back to them and let yourself guide yourself, it's just easier to do them when you're listening rather than reading. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's a lovely yeah. reminder. And we are going to air one of those on the yeah. podcast. So, but that's obviously my voice and not yours. So it's yeah. a good tip. Like, you know, if you have a, a smartphone around or some kind of recording yeah. device to record it and then yeah. listen to it. But that's also yes. a good point um, that you're saying because it's going to be in your voice, which is fine. So there's something um, about this advanced practice that's advanced and contemporary in that the premise is that awakening is the next natural stage of human development, that it's learnable, it's yes. teachable, it's accessible to everyone who's willing to go through a kind of developmental stage. And it's a non-guru um, way of doing it. So it doesn't have to be me reading it. You know, people from around the, the world have emailed me that just by reading it in their own voice or, you know, they can access this by doing this, learning how to unhook awareness from thought and have it shift into their own awareness and be aware from there. It 
allows you to access your own potential. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there is something about listening to your yeah. own voice. Like for years, I've recommended that when people set goals or do dreams or intentions, they record them mm-hmm. in their own voice and listen to them daily or however much they need to, because it's so effective. It's like you, you're talking to yourself, right? Your highest, best self is talking that's to right. yourself, really. So it is a wonderful suggestion. So we are coming to the end of our time here. Can you please let people know how to find the book and how to find you on YouTube and some of the free resources you offer as well? Yeah, probably the best way is just to go to my website because everything is there. So it's www.lockkelly.org. So L-O-C-H-K-E-L-L-Y.org. And you'll see a link to my book which um, there's some free videos along with that. And then um, events upcoming. I'm going to be giving a retreat in Costa Rica coming up. So Ooh, things like that. Wonderful. And when is that coming up? At the end of February. Okay. So February yeah. 2020. And hopefully far into the future if you're listening <laughs> right. to this. Years from now, right? That's right. <laughs> so yeah. wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis.